0: Well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning, so if you have your Bible with you, you could please turn there. And also, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then hold your place in Acts so that we can go to 1 Timothy 1 and start there this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. So far in the book of Acts, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem throughout Judea, then into Samaria, last week to Africa via the Ethiopian eunuch, and this week we're going to see what God does to to begin the movement of the gospel being spread to the ends of the earth. But while uh, many were involved in the gospel going to the ends of the earth, there was one Individual that the Lord had called whose role was prominent and probably more prominent than anyone else's. And we're talking about the one who would eventually be named as Paul the Apostle, but initially he was Saul of Tarsus. Many years after Saul became Paul, Paul wrote these words, to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus." This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, immortal invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul looked back on his many years in Christ near the end of his life and he was amazed like we all are at the fact that Jesus Christ came into our lives and did something not only in our lives and to our lives but through our lives. And Paul looked back and he shared that amazement with Timothy and said that my life is a pattern to anyone else who might believe. If God could do this with me, he could do it with anybody. And I feel the same way. If he could do it with me, he can do it with anyone. Uh, er Everybody's heard of C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, the great uh, English author and Christian apologist. And he writes about his own testimony of his conversion to Christ. He said, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. By the way, uh, Lewis was heavily influenced by J.R. Tolkien of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. Uh, Tolkien was a Catholic, but the theological discussions they had together greatly influenced Lewis towards being a believer in God. So this is what Lewis says. He says, In that term I gave in, admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. And he rightly acknowledged the, the humility of God to reach into the lives of men like Lewis, of people like you, people like me, of men like Saul of Tarsus. It's really an amazing thing that he would even pay attention. Well, Saul of Tarsus' conversion was much like Lewis's. He, too, was a reluctant convert, and like Lewis, a very unlikely convert. Nobody, I'm sure, saw this coming that one day Saul would be madman Saul, and the next day would be on the road toward being the greatest missionary in the history of the church. Amazing. These things are true of Saul, true of C.S. Lewis, true of you, true of me. It's amazing, the grace of God. So we start in Acts 9, uh, the narrative. We first see Saul's violent vendetta. He had a vendetta. He had something against Jesus. He had something against the church of Jesus. And that's what these two verses deal with. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, 150 miles away, so that if he found any who were of the way that is, of the church, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is describing what Saul was doing after the death of Stephen. His, his name, this, Saul is, is, is his actual Hebrew name, Shaul, and it means ask or asked for. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word, which is his name. Later, he'd be known by the Greek name Paul, palos, in Greek, meaning little one. So he'd go from Saul, asked for, to Paul, little one. And notice the text tells us that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, meaning this is an ongoing thing that's been going on in his life. In Acts 8, the chapter previous, uh, Paul agreeing to the death of Stephen, there was a persecution that rose against the church, and Paul was very much... A part of that persecution. A.T. Robertson in his uh, word pictures in the New Testament writes about Paul's or Saul's threats and murder against the church. He says, Saul's threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed. Like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle, the taste of blood and the death of Stephen was pleasing to young Saul. And now he reveled in the slaughter of the saints, both men and women. I don't think it can be overstated, the anger and the vitriol inside of the heart of Saul against the church and against Jesus as a result. He was on a war path, and he was smelling blood, and he went after it. Later, of course, it would be the thing that he was most ashamed of concerning his past. But at the present time, He believed he was doing the right thing. Just like Jesus said, there would be a time coming when those who kill you, he said to his disciples, will think that they're actually doing service to God by killing you. That's certainly what Saul believed. Again, back in chapter 8, it tells us that devout men carried Stephen, the first martyr of the church, to his burial, and they lamented his, his passing. But as for Saul... The text tells us he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So that was Saul's life. That was his existence. He was enraged against Jesus. Later he would write to the Galatians and he would say, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. An impossible task, but that was his aim, was to destroy the church of God. Persecution. Chasing after God's people, pursuing them, hunting them down like wild animals, and eventually putting them to death. Now I'm going to have a couple of uh, slides thrown up on the screen, which talk about this meme or this coexist thing that we're familiar with. It's really interesting what these different symbols mean in the coexist. Uh, that what looks like a C is symbolic of Islam. The uh, peace sign, of course, pacifism. The next one having to do with uh, gay rights and so on. And then the next one, the star of David, Judaism. And then what looks like an I, Paganism and then Taoism, the, the next symbol and then the cross, of course, Christianity. And, and I want to point this out, uh, to you just, just because this to me epitomizes the contrast between w- the way we handle cr- persecution and enemies that are allayed against us versus, uh, what other religions in the world and, are, and what they do, and how they handle things. So I'm just going to read what the text is up on the screen. Radical Islam wants to kill gay rights, Judaism, Christianity, and pacifism. If radical Islam got its way, Taoism and paganism would convert or die. Pacifism can only offer nonviolent resistance to Islam. The problem is that radical Islam has no trouble suppressing dissent with violence, so pacifism would be wiped out. Gay rights have been suppressed by all religions, which, which means, of course, that uh, from the gay rights perspective, any anyone that opposes that behavior is against them personally. That's their their worldview. But let's just take it for what the statement says. Uh, this is, uh, has been suppressed by all religions, and rightly so in many ways, which makes it intolerant of Islam. Judaism and Christianity. Judaism is threatened by annihilation, not by only radical Islam, but also by pacifism, who supports Islam over Judaism. Paganism and Taoism are statistically insignificant, but needed to uh, to be part of it to help the sticker make sense. <laughs> but biblical Christianity is who the sticker is directed against, but poses no threat to the others. And I think that's the thing that is really to be pointed out. Biblical Christianity isn't trying to eliminate and kill the rest of the world. It's not trying to inhibit religious freedom. It's not mad at individual people. It is seeking to seek and to save that which is lost and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Biblical Christianity is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And it's the only one of any of the... Groups on the coexist list that actually is in that category. But here is Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church. How will the church handle it? How will they respond to the persecution of Saul and to the uh, the persecution against the church? Well, they left Jerusalem. We've already seen that in our study. And they went out and they preached the gospel everywhere they went. They used it as an opportunity. This horrible thing that had happened to them, forcing them to vacate Jerusalem, to leave friends and and neighbors and houses and lands, and to go places where they didn't know before, they just took it as a new opportunity to do something different. And they preached the gospel wherever they went. And, as we'll see, I think they prayed for those that were persecuting them. Well, the text goes on here in our story, uh, Saul blinded by the light. So he's been asking for permission. He's gotten permission to persecute the believers all the way up to Damascus. And now we see how he's blinded by the light. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me A dramatic event he's blinded by this light a light shone We know he was blinded by the light because of the way he told his testimony in Acts 22 when he's uh, defending uh, the gospel before the gathered Jewish mob in Jerusalem and he said at that point in Acts twenty two eleven that he couldn't see because of the glory of the light and had become blind. Well, it tells us in our text that he fell to the ground when this blinding light shone around him and blinded him. He fell to the ground. No mention of a horse, by the way. We usually associate a horse with Saul's conversion, but None of the versions of his testimony in the book of Acts include a horse, so we can't for sure say that he fell off his horse. Uh, anyway, that's not a deal breaker. That's like, that's in the realm of the three magi. We've got automatically, mystically, three magi every Christmas time, but the text actually doesn't tell us that there were three magi. We assume that because of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but doesn't tell us that in the text. Well, others that were with uh, Saul also fell to the ground, according to Acts 26, and this voice was heard, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Now the others didn't hear the voice Acts 22:9 tells us, which means they didn't understand what it was saying. There was not clarity of sound. It was either... It was either like that, or there was a a language that was being spoken that they didn't understand. We didn't. We don't really know. But notice what Jesus said here. The voice is Jesus, of course. We'll see. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is how connected a believer in Christ is with him. That when someone can, uh, persecutes a believer, it's just like they're persecuting Jesus. That's how in Christ you are. That's how in Christ I am. My identity isn't of, of my own self. I am only what I am Because I am in Christ. And like Josh McDowell said years ago on a tape that I'll never forget. He said the true thing about you is not what you think. But the true thing about you is what God says about you in Christ. And what God says about us in Christ is that we are inextricably linked with him. There's a connection. He is in us. And we are in Him. We are in Him in the heavenly places. All spiritual blessings belong to us in the heavenly places in Christ. We're chosen in Him, redeemed in Him, forgiven in Him. All of these things that are ours to the point where when someone persecutes a true believer, Jesus feels it as though they are persecuting Him. Indeed, He takes it personally. He feels it personally. Why are you Persecuting me, Saul, was the question. So Jesus introduces himself to Saul as Saul says, "Who are you, Lord?" verse five Then the Lord said, "I am Jesus whom you' are persecuting." Uh, in some ways that would be like going into Mexico and going into a marketplace and saying, Jose, and you'd have a bunch of guys running up (laughs) to answer your call. I mean, Jesus is a common name in the New Testament. But the way he said it, and the fact that he said it from heaven, and the fact that it was connected to a supernatural event, there was only one Jesus in, in Saul's mind when this was answered this way, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one that he had rejected, the one that he was angry against, the one who uh, he was attacking through persecution. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's what he said to Saul. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And again, in some of your translations, if you have a, a newer translation, that last phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, is not in the text in verse 5. But it belongs there because it's in Paul's uh, testimony that he gives later uh, to Agrippa. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. So it belongs there. And what it meant was that it's very painful for you to resist. Very painful you for you to, to attack me the way you're attacking me. The ox goad was was something that the farmer would use to prod the ox into activity. And sometimes it was on the actual uh, plow itself. Sometimes it was a, the f- a form of a pointed stick that the farmer would use. But in any rate, when the ox tried to free itself from the ox goad, it was very painful because they'd kick back and all they'd reach was a pointed end. And the pointed end would go right into them and it would hurt them. And be very painful. And that's what it was like for Saul. He was resisting Jesus' attempt to reach him. And he was resisting the conviction of sin. And and you know what that conviction of sin is like. The conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit influencing our conscience and telling us, you're wrong. You've sinned. You've failed. You've broken my commandment. You've disobeyed my law. Uh, you're in the wrong and you need to admit it. That's the conviction of sin. It's a good thing. Conviction is a very important thing and it's a good thing. But Saul was rejecting it. He had been convicted of the sin of covetousness by the Lord, Romans 7 tells us. And he rejected that. He resisted it and every time he resisted, everything he did to resist, including persecution, was painful to Saul. And I can so relate. In the years leading to my beginning to of of following Jesus, I knew I was going to be a Christian one day. I knew that it was inevitable that I'd be what they called back then a Jesus freak in Orange County, California. I'd be one of them. But Ben, it's like another friend of mine says: there are three kinds of people in the world: there are believers, there are unbelievers, and there are procrastinators. And I was a procrastinator. I was. I wasn't an unbeliever. I was a procrastinator. I was putting it off. And the thought of doing this, to being this, I loved it and hated it at the same time. And every movement I made to resist it was painful to me. So I can relate with what Saul of Tarsus went through in that sense. He humbly responds to Jesus, the next verse tells us. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He calls him kurios in Greek, Lord, which could be translated master, but here I think it means more than just master. But even if it only means master, it's certainly a submission to someone who obviously was superior to him. But he knew it was Jesus, so it was in the sense of Lord. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Imagine being a Christian, a new believer, in that very time period, in Jerusalem or in any of the cities outside of Jerusalem, in Judea or Samaria or on the road to Damascus. Imagine being a believer during that time and you've heard about Saul of Tarsus and the rampage that he was on. And you're wondering, is he ever going to come to our town? And if he does, what's he going to do? And you're hoping and praying that this persecution would end. but I bet that there weren't that many that saw it ending this way, that Saul would be converted. But then again, you go back to his name. His name means ask or asked for. Maybe that's why he was given that name at birth, because there would be those that would be asking for his soul through conversion. There'd be those that'd be praying for him. And it wouldn't surprise me if the believers were praying for him. And not just praying for him like, Lord, bring your thunder and your lightning down upon him and kill him real good. <laughs> not like that. But really praying for him. Like Jesus taught us to pray. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus taught us. But I say to you, love your... You say, by you've been taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Bless those that pursue you curse you do good to those who hate you pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you and i can't imagine a scenario where these early believers weren't being obedient to that i'm sure they were being obedient to it they were praying for those who were spitefully using them and persecuting them and praying blessing not playing praying cursing but praying blessing You know, we're supposed to, in our current climate, pray for kings and for all those in authority. A lot of people are upset at the kings that are over us right now. Does that mean we don't pray for them? No, we do pray for them. How do we pray for them? Not curses, but blessings. That's what God says that we must do, and we should that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if we're going to be like our Father, we're going to be bringing blessing upon others and not cursing. Let the Lord handle the judgment part. That's his job. That's not our job. And Jesus said, I didn't even come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world so that through Belief in me, the world might be saved. So that frees me, that frees you from having to be the arbiter of the rest of the human race and making judgments upon others. That's God's job. And eventually, eventually you know, the sin's going to be rewarded and justice will prevail. So the text goes on and tells us how Saul the dangerous becomes Saul the meek. Verse 7, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I mean, my goodness, what was this man going through? He had just had a conversation with the with the King of the Universe, the one that made him, the one that created him, the one that he'd been trying to snuff out of existence through killing the Church. He just had a conversation, and this this conversation it wasn't it wasn't an angry one. It wasn't something to where. Jesus was saying, you know, you've done all this to me, now it's your turn, I'm going to get you back. There was none of that in it. I I would say it was probably much like the voice of the Lord when Adam was hiding in the Garden of Eden. And Adam uh, was hiding and the Lord said, Adam, where are you? Uh, How do we understand the tone of that? Adam! Where are you? Was it that, or was it Adam? Where are you? all the oxen free <laughs> like you didn't know, or was it Adam? Where are you? I think it was Adam. Where are you? A voice that had entreaty in it, a voice that was was kind and inviting and and I do believe that that that's what was going on in Saul's mind. He'd heard a voice that was kind, full of entreaty. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not in a prosec- prosecutorial uh, sense, but in a, in a, let's talk about this. This doesn't make sense. I want to have a relationship with you. So there's no doubt Saul was going through all these things in these three days of sightlessness and not eating anything, not drinking anything during those days, all by himself. Helpless, completely helpless. But I don't think he was hopeless. And he complied. He did what the Lord told him to do. And that is, um, you know, go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Verse 10 through 18. We're going to read the whole section and then come back. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. (laughs) And he said, here I am, Lord. I'll just stop there for a second. What if his response would have been, nope, I'm not interested. (laughs) Kind of like hang up the phone like you do when a telemarketer calls, you know. (laughs) Some do. Yeah, I do. No, I just silence them. No, I just block them. What if he would have had that kind of response? But, you know, this is interesting. Here I am. Here I am. It's a statement that says I'm available. Here I am. I'm not going anywhere. Not going to run. Not going to try to hide. Not going to make an excuse. Here I am. That's what Ananias said. Uh, to the Lord in this vision, reminds me of Isaiah when he had that vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and this holy vision with the seraphim and the, the fire and the altar and the tongs, and and then the Lord says, "Who will go for us? And whom shall I send?" And Isaiah said, "Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am. I'm available." It's one of the most holy postures in a Christian's life to have that attitude towards the Lord every day. Here I am. I'm available. Send me. Use me. Make me someone that you can use. Verse 11, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying, I bet. And in a vision he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Isn't this wonderful how the Lord's setting the table? He's letting Saul know that Ananias is coming. He's letting Ananias know that Saul's there and they're, he's linking everybody up together so they all know that it's a supernatural thing that's going on and they'll understand it when it takes place. So the Lord gave Ananias this assignment because he'd been open and available. That's how the Lord gives any of us assignments when we get open and available. He's not look, You've heard this before. He's not looking primarily for ability. He's looking for availability. And it's the unavailability of believers that is the number one reason why the Lord doesn't use a, a specific individual. They're just not available. It's the parable of the sower all over again. The, sown is, the seed is sown among thorns, and the thorns grow up with the wheat and choke out the wheat so that the wheat becomes unfruitful. What does that mean? Well, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things chokes the word of God that's sown in our hearts so that it becomes unfruitful, and of unavailability results from all the busyness that's in our lives and all of our own agendas. And I understand it. I'm guilty of it myself at times. And so, you know, we've got this thing where we need to be able to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am. Do what you want to do. Ananias was open and available, so the Lord gave him his assignment. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Obviously, this is distressing news, you know, to hear that he's got to go talk to Saul face to face, mano a mano. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So this is a very dangerous thing you're calling me to do, Lord. I've heard about him from many. Many have told about how violent he is. I don't think that these were excuses on Ananias' part, as if he wasn't going to obey. They were legitimate concerns. I mean, this is real. This is real life. This is real threats that are against him now because he's got to go see Saul. But Ananias wanted, I believe and needed a response from Jesus. If you're calling me to do this, here I am, send me. If you're calling me to do this, here I am, send me. But I need to hear from you confirmation that you're in this. If you want me to go into a situation and the end of that will be my physical life ends and I come to be with you, so be it. But I just need to know you're doing it. It's not just because of my own stupidity and foolishness that I go into that situation. I need confirmation. And I think Ananias needed to hear and wanted to hear a response from Jesus. So, what does Jesus do? Predictably, he responds to Ananias. He speaks to him. Like he does to you, like he does to me. Verse 15, "But the Lord said to Ananias, "Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake." So here is Jesus answered Ananias. Ananias says, "Lord, I've heard about this guy how violent he's been against your saints." And he has authority to do what he's done everywhere else here, right here, where I live. And the Lord says, well, go. I want you to go anyway, because he's a chosen vessel of mine. That's the first thing he says. He's a chosen vessel of mine because he's going to bear my name before the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles. He's going to bear my name before kings, which he ends up doing and he's going to bear my name before the children of Israel, all of which happened. But that was the mission that the Lord was sending Saul on, was to bear his name and his gospel. And then Jesus said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, two things that are amazing to me about that. Number one is that I'm absolutely sure that this was not vindication on Jesus's part. Saul, you've been persecuting me. You've made it rough on me. You've come against my church, so I'm paying you back. You're going to suffer, suffer, suffer. I don't think it had to do with that at all. Uh, There were things that the Lord had in mind because of Saul's suffering, Paul's suffering. And we read about them later in in the New Testament. Definitely, it was one of the ways that the Lord used to keep Paul humble. His suffering kept him humble. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when there was this thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan sent by uh, the Lord to buffet Paul, to beat him up, to inflict pain and injury upon him. And three times Paul asked the Lord that it might depart from him. But the Lord said to him, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's how my power operates. And so that's what this is for. This is to keep you humble. But the entire picture of it was Saul, Paul, at that point, had received amazing revelations of the Lord. He had seen things that he said, if I were to come back down here and write a book about it or appear on television and talk about it, it would be a criminal act. It was a holy moment, so holy I shouldn't even repeat it to other human beings. And that's the kind of depth of revelation that Paul had from the Lord. But that was tempting him to become proud. I received a revelation. I received a... No, I mean, there was none of that inside of him at all. And the Lord didn't want there to be that inside of him. So he sent the messenger of Satan to buffet him. That humbled Paul. But it also showed Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 how that even if Paul was incredibly weak because of his suffering, the Lord's strength would be made complete in his weakness. In other words, human weakness does not keep God from doing what he wants to do through human life. In fact, in many ways, it enables him to do it. Because we're out of the way. We realize it's not us. It didn't come from us, it came from him. And also, Paul's suffering became an example to others. When he wrote to the Romans, he said, this is what I think. He said, I think that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That was his conclusion. Now we read that now, and we're tremendously encouraged. People go through suffering, and they read things like this, and they think, this is exactly right. This is very temporary, this thing called life on earth. 70, 80, 90, 100 years maybe of life, and then it's done. How long is that? Well, James says it's like a puff of steam. It's like a vapor that appears and then is gone. You don't see it anymore. That's how long our lifespans are. Compared to eternity, compared to Limitless time, which is uh, infinity in both directions. And, but yet, our, our lives are meaningful. And the sufferings that we experience in this little puff of steam we call our lives are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. That's a tremendous strength and courage and, and empowerment in our souls, it keeps us going. So these are the answers to Ananias. And I've got a plan for this man, Ananias, so go to him. And so he went. So in verse 17, it tells us that Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, and said, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he, was, and he rose and was baptized. He was all in now, healing from his blindness, filled with the Holy Spirit as a result of Ananias' prayer, baptized, fully identifying with Christ as his new master, Jesus himself. Obedience. Obedience obedience, Ananias did it. He went to Saul. Based upon what Jesus had just told him about his plan for Saul, Ananias went and did it. And don't you just love the way he addresses him, Brother Saul. He's a brother. The day before, he wouldn't have said Brother Saul. Saul. I don't know what he would have called him, but he wouldn't have said Brother Saul. And these are the details that Ananias shared with Saul. This would confirm to Saul that Ananias had been sent by the Lord. The Lord Jesus appeared to you. Yeah, that's right. He did. How did you know that? Well, the Lord showed me. He sent you to me. Uh, he sent me to you that you might receive your sight. Well, how did you know I was blind? And he added, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Essential. So the conversion of Saul... Is complete. The title of the message isn't just having to do with the conversion of Saul. Saul's journey from Saul to Paul. Saul's journey from being the one that somebody asked for to being Paul, the little one. Little in his own eyes. When he would write his letters to the churches, he would say, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, not by the will of man. God did this. He would say of himself, I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, Saul became Paul, the little one. Little in his own eyes. Now, tradition tells us that he was short of physical stature as well, but I don't think that's what he's talking about, because you can't predict that when a child is coming out of the womb and you name the child. Saul became Paul. But it was a process, and next week we're going to talk about some of the things that the Lord did in Saul to make him Paul. Because there are things that he does in you, he does in me. This is a journey, this Christian life is a journey. It all starts the same way for every single one of us, it starts by trusting Christ for our salvation and he gives us life. The Christian life always begins with the impartation of life. What life is it? It's the life of Jesus. It's the same life that raised him from the dead, resurrection life that is imparted to us, given to us upon faith in Christ. All of a sudden we're alive and we know it. It's the new birth. It's being born from above. It's being born again. We were dead the day before. We were dead in trespasses, dead in sins. But now we're alive together with Christ. We have his life. And that's knowable. That's able to be experienced. And we do. You know, what is a Christian? Well, John puts it this way. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son of God has life. And in the Greek, it's he who has the Son of God has the life. talking about the specific life of Jesus. He who has the Son of God has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Humanity is in two classes. There are those who are in Adam, their natural birth, their natural spiritual heredity. And there are those that are in Christ, the new birth, given his life, uh, a heredity that comes from God himself in heaven. And it's, there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. To be born of God, to be born of his life, and this is what's happened to Saul But even though he has life, there's a lot he doesn't know. There's a lot of experience he hasn't had. And it's not commonly understood, but even though God had called Saul to be his chosen vessel, to bear his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel... He didn't become Paul the Apostle until probably about 12 or 13 years after his conversion. There's a lot that went on between the time of receiving life and actually going out on his first missionary journey as the Apostle Paul. And we're going to talk about that next week because it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting story. The section that we've looked at this morning ends with verse 19 so when he had received food that is Saul he was strengthened then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus oh wouldn't it be nice to be a fly on the wall <laughs> and drop in on those conversations my goodness and the t- and the tutoring and the mentoring that was going on as they were spending time with Saul and he with them. What they're telling him about their journeys for Jesus and about what they know of the Son of God. Stories that Saul was no, no doubt familiar with, having uh, been raised essentially in Jerusalem. All of this growth in Christ. They were discipling him into Christ, into his relationship with the Lord. So he's on his way to becoming Paul. Next week, more. Amen? So we thank you, Lord. Let's stand together, shall we, as we pray. We're going to sing one last song. It'll be up on the screen. Um, Mark isn't going to be singing it with us, but we've been prepared uh, for this very moment. Lord, thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. Thank you for the, the new birth, the life that you've given us and we thank you that we have it those of us that have acknowledged our need for Jesus and have believed in the gospel message Lord for anybody that's listening to this either present or online that doesn't have this life yet we pray for them that their eyes would be open that they'd see their need for the son of God that they'd see their need for forgiveness and that they'd rush to believing in him Because Jesus paid for their sins. They can be forgiven if they'll just receive the gift of Jesus. So Lord, we pray for that in them. That they'd be able to pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I am a sinful person. And I know now that I need you. I want to begin to follow you. Please come into my life. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. You're alive today. So please, Jesus, come into my life with your life and give me the the motivation and the power to follow you. Thank you, Jesus' name. That can be a prayer that is prayed. And Lord, we just thank you that when we prayed that prayer, those of us that have in this room, Lord, you met it. You did something in us and you began our journeys, which are not over with until we draw our last breath. So thank you, Lord, for the plan that you have for us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.